0: Hello, this is Tim Convoy, the pastor of New Life Community Church located in Nashville, Indiana. I'd like to thank you for visiting our podcast, and I trust that God will just bless you and encourage you and speak to your heart as you listen to this message. Thank you again for joining us, and God bless you. All right, so let's have fun in Acts 15. Acts 15, we're going to wrap it up. We, you know, I kind of Been in this chapter. It's kind of a long chapter. But remember, this is the pivotal point. This is the entire direction of the church is predicated on this chapter. Will the church go by the way of the legalists that they were showing and teaching and promoting? Or will the church stick with the grace of God that brings salvation? And so this is really a turning point, and it dictates really the future of the church body. Now, I'm not going to read the entire chapter. We have already worked through that, but I am going to. Uh, just kind of hopscotch over a couple uh, highlights. And so, if we were to start in verse 1 of chapter 15, it says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren. And here's what they taught them. Unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. He says, unless you do this, it's impossible to be saved. Now remember, Galatians 2.4 tells us that these men were false brethren. But we we're also told in our chapter that James said that, yes, these men went out from us. There's no doubt that they were in our circles. But we did not endorse the message that they brought to you. So they came from the church, and they came down and brought their message to the church in Antioch. And it created quite a controversy. Remember, uh, Luke said there was no small dissension. So a nice way to say it. it. wasn't a small dissension. It was a huge dissension, right? It didn't mean everything got unglued. It was they, You should have been at church that Sunday. It's like, man, things were happening. Fur was flying. Well, the church sends the entourage down to Jerusalem to meet the council and explain both physicians and to hear this thing out and say, well, which is it? In verse 5, we'll pick it back up. Once the False brethren explained their position on the law of Moses. It says, but some of the sect of the Pharisees. Remember, Pharisee means righteous ones. Some of the righteous ones, they had this label that they went by. Boy, wouldn't wouldn't you hate to have that label? I mean, they wore it proudly. Oh, I'm a righteous one. I don't know. I, I, I think I would wear it fearfully. Tim, hey, there's Tim the Pharisee, the, the righteous one. Oh, I'm righteous. And, and that would be good until someone followed me for about 10 minutes. They found out, he ain't no righteous one. He's Tim the unrighteous one, the unPharisee, Kind of like the Uncola back in the day. So I don't know. I mean, they had the label. They were still labeled. Even in the church body, they knew who they were. So here they are in a church meeting And these were believers, it says, sect of the Pharisees, who believed. They believed that Jesus Christ, they put their faith in Christ, no doubt about it. But they rose up and they said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So they heard their case and they said, you know what, that sounds right. And they said, you know what, we do it. We got to tell them, yep, this is how it is. And by the way, you don't think that this really impacts the church, this belief system, uh, but it did more than impact the church. It impacted culture and society. I mean, if you were to ask the medical industry today, uh, which is more prevalent, circumcised or uncircumcised, you would probably find circumcised, and we're not going to get into all that. But you follow what I'm saying? It's impacted our whole community. I mean, saved or lost are Jew or Gentile. This belief system has impacted us, our whole country, and even for many, many generations. So they say, yes, it's necessary. Well, then Peter rises up, and Peter's going to say, wait a minute, you know, I went to see Cornelius and Gentiles, Holy Spirit fell on them, they spoke in tongues, God purified their hearts by faith, and then he says in verse 10, now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples? which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. He goes, okay, why are you testing God by taking this yoke of the law, the Ten Commandments, the Old Covenant, and taking it off of your neck and putting it on their neck? You couldn't even do it yourself. Our forefathers couldn't do it. And yet you think they're going to be able to do it? Boy, they. There's no way. So he says, why are we doing this? Verse 11, but we believe that through the grace of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even in the same manner as they. And remember, interesting turn of words. Instead of they shall be saved as us, no, we shall be saved as them. And so <clears throat> the argument went on. They finally, James, will then write a letter to the church and say, Hey, we're sorry about what these guys did. We didn't authorize it. And he writes this, wrapping it up, verse 28. Verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. It's always a good order, isn't it? And it's always a good thing. If it's good with the Holy Spirit, it better be good with us. Amen? All right. Parentheses. I remember one time, drums were first introduced to the platform. I went through the Bible and I described them in the Bible. Even how tabrets, which were drums, were used in heaven for the glory of God in the scriptures. In Acts 20, or, uh, Ezekiel 28. And I go through all that and I had someone say... Yeah, I see it's in the Bible, but I still don't think it's right. You put on your lightning clothes real quick, you know, and hold your lightning. Ah, It's like, wow. And I'm thinking, did I really just hear you say that? Anyways, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Not necessary for salvation, necessary for testimony. What are they? Verse 29 That you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood and from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these things, you do well. He's not saying you will be saved. He said this is your testimony. So he says, okay, here's our encouragement. Here's our, our recommendation to you. Stay away from idolatry don't get involved in the idolatrous worship and the sacrificial worship and 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 the the drinking of the blood and the strangulation of the sacrifice he says stay away from that stuff stay away from the the idolatrous uh, sexual immorality and that that's Porninia is the word. It takes all of it. It takes whether it's lust, whether it's uh, adultery, whether it's pornography, whether it's homosexuality. This is a whole gamut, he says. Stay away from sexual immorality. Anything that's contrary to God's definition of morality. Not mine, not yours, not society's. He said, if you do this, you'll do well. So when we see this text here, we have been focusing, we began focusing on legalism. Legalism, an affront to God's grace. We saw this church in Antioch it was a church that had peace. It was full of joy. It was full of harmony. And then legalism creeps in. These guys come along and they start preaching this, this doctrine, this belief system. Oh, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. And next thing you know, this war breaks out. And this, this battle breaks out. It goes from peace and joy and harmony to heaviness and argumentative, and confusion. You see, friends, if the devil cannot stop one's salvation from grace, the devil will corrupt one's walk of grace. If he can't stop you from being saved by grace, then once you are saved, he will corrupt your walk of grace. And how will he do it? By injecting legalism into this. And that's what he did in the text here. And like I said, we saw the unsaved legalists, and we saw those who were saved, the Pharisees. And we saw those who didn't know what to do with this. Let's go by way of review. Verse 10, we saw the word, why do you tempt God? It's the worst test. Why do you test God? This is our definition. It says, in a bad sense, to test one maliciously, craftily, to put to the proof of his feelings and judgments. Putting God to the test, Lord, prove it. Prove your judgments, prove your t- So we test him concerning things he's already said or things that he said, this is how I feel about this. And so I think Mike Slick with the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry gives a pretty good working definition. He writes, in Christianity, legalism is the excessive and improper use of the law, whether it's the Ten Commandments or holiness laws, etc., This legalism can take different forms. We saw, first of all, the first is where a person attempts to keep the law in order to attain salvation. This is where we all were before we're saved. The second is a person who keeps the law in order to maintain salvation. This is what they would look like if you were to draw them out. I like pictures, so I draw them. The lost legalists. They're the ones, before they're saved, they say, you know what, I, my good's going to outweigh my bad, and God knows my heart, and I'm good, and me and God are like this. That's exactly what I used to say one time. Me and God were like this before we were saved. And I thought somehow my good was going to outweigh my bad, because when I looked at my life, I said, you know, I'm pretty good. I'm not a bad guy. Oh, yes, all those drugs, all that booze, all that bad stuff. So what if I was arrested? I mean, I was still a good guy. Right? Yes, I did hold my numbers up one time. What? That's okay, that's okay. B.C. B.C. The problem with the legalist position for being lost is James tells us that one bad sin outweighs all the good things, right? He who commits or he who keeps the whole law yet offends in one point is guilty of all that He takes the entire law. <clears throat> that's, a, that's on your side. All I said was just a little white lie. It wasn't even a black lie. It was a white lie. It wasn't even a gray lie. It was, it was just a little white lie. You know, the law is to show that we're sinners, And if you break one, you qualify as a sinner. And the good part is you qualify for salvation. Right? Because only sinners can be saved. Yes! Well, the lost legalists is who we met in the beginning. And they were espousing this is how you cannot even be saved unless you do this. And then there were those in verse 5 who were the saved legalists. They said, you know what? That sounds pretty good. That sounds reasonable. And I, I believe much of Christianity... Uh, Is on this tightrope. I believe they are saved genuinely by faith, by God's grace through faith. They put their faith in Jesus Christ. But since they've been saved, they said, oh yeah, you got to walk that line, brother. You got to stay on that line. If you mess up, you got to make sure you're being good because you want to please God. And if you mess up, off you go into the drink. Right? The problem with this belief system, again, as I said last week or two weeks ago, is that this is a walk of fear, not a walk of faith. God did not call us with the spirit of fear, right? But of power and love and a sound mind. I'm still working on that part. God says, listen, this isn't a fear thing. Oh, I wonder, I'm trying, Lord. There are so many Christians going through life, and they're just, I'm trying, Lord. I'm trying to be better. I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to be good. And it's constantly going through this battle of fear and of doubt. And then there's the third position of legalism. Those who are saved and yet are judgmental. The third is when a Christian judges other Christians for not keeping certain codes of conduct that they think need to be observed. Aren't you glad you never met these people? (laughs) All right, this is confession time. I remember when I first came to this church. And I came here, and there was a young man playing the drums over here. And he was in there, He's having that, and he did a great job, and he gets done. And I saw him afterwards come up and go, oh, hey, weren't you the drummer? He says, yeah. And this gentleman, and by the way, we've talked about it, we laugh about it even today. He had this long, curly, kinky hair. And he had purple sneakers. With big eyeballs on the ends of the sneakers, I went, "Wow! Hey, dude, how are you?" And I'm thinking, "Huh, oh, oh, hmm." You know those things that run through your head. And then I find out that this young man, Corey Romeiser, who I love to death, isn't he awesome? That guy loves the Lord. He loves the Lord, man. I tell you, he's, someone said, oh, yeah, he started a Bible study in school and it's still going on today and he's doing an internship and he's all about ministry. And I'm thinking, this guy? I just judged him by the cover. You ever done that? They say never judge a book by his cover? Well, nowadays, they never judge a book by the movie. However it goes now. <laughs> but, but I'm like, oh, boy, this couldn't be Right? And then, the next week I get here, and there was a guy up here playing the guitar with hair at his shoulders. I go, on the platform. <laughs> and then, uh, this is before he learned to put it up. <laughs> I said, why? And I said to Gabe, you, and I, love, I love him to death. And we were talking, and I said, hey, I like your hair. I did. Mine used to look like that, believe it or not. I see it. You're trying to see it, aren't you? Trying to see it. Yeah, yeah. No beard, just a mustache. And he goes, yeah, I grow it out, and I cut it, and I give it to cancer patients. Oh, I thought uh, you were under a Nazarite vow (laughs) and you weren't supposed to cut your hair. We judge people. Do we not? Because some of you say, hey, he's got shorts on the platform. (laughs) Let me tell you something. That means nothing to God, right? Right. Man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. He goes, I want to see how the heart is. Praise the Lord for... I look and I say... You know, I say it in shame. I confess confess these things in shame. say, why do I think like that sometimes? And I know I'm a recovering Baptist. I understand that. (laughs) But why? For for you Baptists out there, I still love you. We're still... But, But be honest. Don't you do that sometimes? Don't you look at someone and judge them by the outward appearance? And we end up like this poor guy. People, you know... He eats what? Are those tattoos? He drinks, what? Look what he's doing. Look at how he dresses. He goes, where? And he's just sitting there, oh, help me, Lord. You ever felt like the guy in the middle, the girl in the middle? But remember the others, as I said before, whenever you're pointing a finger at someone else, there's three more pointing back at you, aren't they? So sometimes... Christians in other churches can be like this guy. We need to remember Romans 14. Remember, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute or doubtful things. In other words, don't receive them so you can argue with them. Don't receive them so you can show them how wrong they are in doing whatever it is they're doing. He gives this example. He says, One believes that he may eat all things. Oh, omnivore. But he who is weak eats only vegetables. That's why he's weak. Just, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. But the, these are all scripture verses, by the way. The next verse says this. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. It means to look down upon. To have a superior attitude. <laughs> He's just a vegetarian. Oh, I'm a carnivore. You know, he says, no attitudes here. But then he says, there's an attitude on the other side. He says, let not him who does not eat, judge him who eats. So the one side's got the superior attitude. I'm more spiritual than they are because I can eat all things. And the other's got this judgmental attitude. Oh, I can't believe he eats that stuff. And he says, for God has received him. In other words, he belongs to God. She belongs to God. He says, who are you to judge another's, meaning God's, servant? I've done that. Have you done that? That was rhetorical. (laughs) (laughs) To his own master, does he stand or falls. Before his own master, he stands up. And guess what? Even before his own master, he falls on his face sometimes. Indeed, he will be made to stand, not by you and not by me, for God is able to make him stand. Amen? In other words, God's saying, listen Tim, I got this. I don't need you to get over and say, boy, you know, you need to do this, that, and the other thing. and Straighten up here and put this on and cut that off. and You know, he says, hey, 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 hey. Like they say in New York, this is a nunya thing. You know what I mean? There's none your business. So God says, there's none your business, Tim. You just go on. I can make him stand. Even when he falls, don't worry. I got this, Tim. I can put him back upright. Aren't you glad for that? Because it's not like we never fall, right? So God says, I got this covered. Now, that was review. We better move on. Observations of legalism. We're going to burn down through. For those who like to take notes, you can put them in your bulletin that you don't have today. <laughs> Bonnie's sick. Hey, when Bonnie's sick, <clears throat> this place falls apart. Seriously. So pray for her. She's got pneumonia, flu. <laughs> Anyways, point number one. When it comes to legalism, remember those three definitions of legalism. It is an assault on God and His grace. It is an assault. That's what he said. Why are you testing God? It is an affront to God. And not only does it assault God and assault His grace, it also insults God and insults His grace. It insults Him because somehow we think God doesn't have this. And somehow we have to get in there and help God to take care of this, as if He couldn't do it without us. Have you ever insulted God? Shame to say, but I have. It is an assault on his grace. Second point. Other seemingly godly friends hold to it. In other words, people we know and love and respect and look up to, they hold to this form of legalism. Maybe it's people we love that haven't been saved yet. They're the lost legalists. Maybe they're the ones that have been saved. They're the ones we look up to. I mean, these guys were Pharisees. They were righteous ones. I mean, they they would know. And and if anyone would know, they would know. And they said, oh, that's right. You've got to keep the law. And you've got to follow the law of Moses and be circumcised, which is the covenant of Abraham. These are two covenants he's mixing. Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. He says, but these are Pharisees. Listen, friends, we've got to be careful because sometimes very godly people have this belief system that is inerrant. You know, I read an interesting article. I'll not read the whole thing to you. It was uh, this Friday in Charisma News. And it's by Michael Brown, a Ph.D. And the article is called Hyper Grace. And it's dealing with hyper grace. All right. I'm all about grace, right? Which is charisma. Or we get our word charismatic by his grace. I am all about grace, and you know I'm a little hyper about that. Yeah, but it's interesting his take on hyper grace, and, and to me it's an extremism. Uh, he goes down through and in this article he writes, it's talking about how they have redefined or literally retranslated the word of God, and he'll take you to Ephesians chapter five, verses five through six, and he'll use this text. Which, <clears throat> excuse me, which will reference for these things. Uh, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And then he'll show how the hypergrace will then translate it and in two of their translations take out the word wrath out of the text. Because after all, you can't have grace and wrath, right? Because they're, you see, they they don't mix well. Let's pause for a minute. God is a God of love. Amen? But guess what? God is also a God of wrath. It's one of His attributes. God's attributes are exactly in balance. One does not outweigh the other. His justice does not outweigh His mercy. They're all exactly balanced. That is our God. And God's wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ for the penalty of our sin. Amen? It wasn't, oh, I'm a little bit upset with you, Jesus, for taking all their sin. No, it was a wrath of God. And the wrath of God uh, was, was part of who God is. But the problem in the text is, he'll say the wrath of God is revealed to the sons of disobedience. So they say, see, it says sons. Therefore, you and I must be sons and daughters, so God's wrath is upon us. Let me tell you something. That's called lifting it out of context. Why? Because... When it speaks, even at chapter 5 and also chapter 2, that the sons of disobedience are not the children of God, but the sons of the disobedient one, the devil. It goes right to John chapter 8, when, when he's, the Pharisees are arguing with Jesus and, and, and about Abraham. He says, we are of Abraham. We don't know. You are born of fornication, they said. Wow, that's a slap. You're an illegitimate child, they're saying to Jesus 30 years after his birth. Don't think they didn't remember, huh? So here they are arguing and said, we know who our father is. Is Abraham. And he goes, no, I'm sorry. You're mistaken. Your father's not Abraham. Your father's the devil. And your father's will you will do for he was a murderer from the beginning. We are not of the devil. Just to prove it, we're going to pick these stones up and stone you to death. Isn't that a, I mean, you read John 8, and it's so crazy. Just to prove that we are not the children of the murderer, we're going to murder you. Okay, so who do you think was right? Jesus or those Pharisees, right? Jesus was. He says, you are of your father, the devil. Sons of disobedience in, in Ephesians, starting in chapter 2, is those who are not saved, they're disobedient to the gospel, they will not turn to the Lord. And he says, if you don't turn to me and accept my love which is poured out, there's nothing left but my wrath to abide upon you. The end of John chapter 3. Right? And so God's saying, I don't want you to see this. I don't want you to have this. I want to send you to heaven because I love you. So we got to be careful here that one, we never remove the wrath of God from the scriptures. Amen? You don't mess with the book. Right? You know me well enough. I'm like, buy the book. So I agree, yes, you don't mess with the wrath of God. The problem is, when he carries it on to where he'll say, some hyper-grace teachers, I wonder if they have a title. Hi, I'm a hyper-grace teacher. They reject the idea that you can grieve the Holy Spirit by our sinful deeds and attitudes. Now, I want to tell you something. I am hyper about grace. Yeah. But I believe you can grieve the Holy Spirit. I believe the Holy Spirit tells us to do something, and we first resist the Holy Spirit. We say, I'm not going to do it. I'm too afraid to do it. No, I can't do that. Well, everyone think of me. So we resist the Holy Spirit, and every time we resist the Holy Spirit, literally means stiff-arm Him, it grieves Him. He's like, oh... Why does it grieve him? Because we are so, being so bad? No, because he knows what's so good on the other side of what, if we do what he asks us to do. You follow me in this? The scripture says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Woo, yeah. So, yeah. So he says, but those that believe, this hypergrace people, he said, that they, they believe that what do they believe? They reject the idea that you could grieve the Holy Spirit. I don't reject that at all. I believe you could grieve him, you could resist him, and you can grieve him. But here's what he says. They allege I like that. I circled it, I highlighted it. They allege, here's what they allege, these hypergrace crazy people. All our sins they allege, including sins we haven't even committed yet have been forgiven, and God sees us as perfectly righteous. <laughs> that's me. I'm telling you right now, that's me, all right? It's not me in the first half. I do believe in greed of the Holy Spirit, but that is me in the second half. And how in the world can someone say they allege that all their sins, even ones they haven't committed yet, have all been forgiven? Wow. Wow. I don't know about you, but I read the scripture where God says, your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. And your sins will be as far as the east is from, your, from the west. And if you confess your sin, he is faithful and he is just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Is that right? Let me tell you, <laughs> praise the Lord. All the sins in the past woo-hoo, are gone, forgiven. Under the blood. But I'm here to tell you what I believe. I believe that all the sins I've yet to commit are also under the blood of Jesus Christ. And he who knew no sin was made sin for me that I might be made the righteousness of God in him. Amen? I'm just alleging that. Don't get me going. Anyways. But he's got a Ph.D., I don't care. If your PhD contradicts our G-O-D, you're wrong. Right? All right, Don't get me going. That was a side note. I, I, literally, I thought about it just before I went to the pulpit this morning and ran back my office, printed out that article. I said, okay, where were we? Other seemingly godly, oh yes, these, these boys, these Pharisees, they're Pharisees. They know more of the Bible than anybody probably. More than me. Well, they, they were saying, hey, no, this is this is true. As a matter of fact, it sounds reasonable and even scriptural. The proof text for being circumcised would and being under the Abrahamic covenant, and then also the law of Moses, they could point to Genesis seventeen three or thirteen. In Genesis seventeen thirteen, it, God God says, God speaking, He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money, in other words, a servant, must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. So they could pull the scripture out and say, look, here's the verse. A matter of fact, they didn't even have 90% of the New Testament at this time of arguing. So they go, all they got is the Old Testament, going on, they go, here's the verse, see, you got to do this. And, and, and it's got to be done. But when we look at this, we... We say, well, that's reasonable and scriptural. Ma, I guess you're right. I guess I better go that way. But what we forget is that when Jesus came, he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Can I get an amen? The new covenant, the New Testament, that's covenant, is greater than the old covenant or Old Testament, but it didn't just eject it, it fulfilled it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Because after all, we said, well, wait a minute, if this is the Abrahamic covenant, aren't we all the children of Abraham? I, I sang the song, Father Abraham and many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. I am one. You, how many have not heard of that song? Anyone? Wow, that's awesome. Only three. First service, it was like seven. And then, so between services, I had to show them how it worked. Left foot, and, you know, Father Abraham, you know, you got to put your hands in all. It's like a Christian aerobics for kids. So, but we sing, we're of Father Abraham. Yes, but we are the household of faith. As a matter of fact, let's, let's superimpose uh, the New Testament over this verse. If you were to read this verse, it says, He who is born in your house, are we born in the household of God? Yes. Absolutely. And so we are of Abraham through faith, because you must be born again. It's the only way to get to heaven. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, uh, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So we were born in a family of God. Secondly, the verse says, "And he who is bought with your money, are we bought? Yes, yes. for we are bought with a price." First Corinthians 6:20. "For you are not I love the way that verse starts. What? What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which you have of God, for you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are His." Aren't you glad even your body belongs to him? Whew. Man, you're have a lot of trouble with that rascal. So, we have been bought with the price. Oh, but there's the key one. but We must be circumcised. Alright? What about scripture in that? Colossians 2.11 says, We are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. God has circumcised the heart. And that, I mean... I'll go into detail, you understand, the word means to cut around, circular. And God says, I have taken your heart, you on the inside, your soul and spirit, which are saved, and I cut around you, I cut around the body of this flesh, the Bible says. Now, I don't know how that worked, I don't know how it happened. All I know is that God, on the inside of me, separated my body from my soul and spirit in such a way that I on the inside have a heart and a will for God, but how to perform that, which is good, I find not, because I've got to work through this crazy flesh. Now, there's a whole thing. I, I did an illustration on this one time using an aquarium. You've got to use an aquarium or something for these kind of illustrations. And we'll explain that again later in, in other detail. But the point is, Jesus fulfilled the law, and he fulfilled the covenant, and he did not simply bypass it. So when it comes to the covenant, when it comes to... Uh, these things that they're arguing about, Jesus fulfilled them. Next point. Not only to sound reasonable and scriptural, uh, the motive is good, though the method is wrong. What's the motive? They want to please God. Is pleasing God a bad motive? Sounds good to me. Is being good a bad motive? No, you want to be good. Before I got saved, I was like, "Eh, I'm not sure if this is going to be real or not. But if what they're telling me is not true, And I pray and ask Jesus to save me. And I'm one of those Christian things. And it's not true. What do I got to lose? I said, eh, I'll still have a good life. I'll still have money in my pocket the next day. I'll still remember the next day. I said, eh, I got nothing to lose. But what if what they're telling me is true and I don't do it? Well, then I got a lot to lose, don't I? You see, being good is not the problem. It's the method that is the problem. So their they're thinking here is that, well, I want to please God. That's good. But they're doing it through behavior, not through belief. Because uh, uh, Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible, God bless you, to please Him. It is impo- he didn't say it's improbable. He didn't say it's difficult. He said, without faith, it is impossible to please God. He goes, you can't even please me. Without belief. Without faith but Lord, I've been trying to please you with all my behavior. He goes, that eh, do not do it. He said, Well, faith, it's impossible to please me. You see, the point is, their motives are good. And even the legalists, the saved legalists, their motives are good. They want to please God. They want God to be happy. Uh, but their method is wrong. They're going about it through their behavior. It also, this is an interesting one, I come to the conclusion, it appeals to both our natures. It appeals to our old nature. Why? Because... We want to have a hand in it. Before we're saved, we want to have a hand in our salvation. We want to be part of it. We want to be good. We want to be able to get to heaven and say, hey, hey, hey. Made it. And the Lord's like, good job, Tim. And we say, well, glad we would never say that as Christians. Well, the fact of the matter is, the Lord says, listen, you're saved by grace through faith and is not of works, lest any man should what? Boast. He goes, if you got to heaven... If your salvation was because of your works to get there, you would boast. But Tim, let me tell you something. If maintaining your salvation was based on your goodness, guess what? You'd get there and you would boast about it. Because I was good enough to get there. Hallelujah! I made it all the way to the end because that's what the Bible says. He that endures to the end shall be saved. Is that what the Bible says? Say yes, it does. But it's not talking about Eternal salvation. You read Matthew 24. He's talking about the tribulation. He says, he that makes it through the end of the tribulation, you'll be delivered. But he's not talking about getting into heaven. Read the text. Amen? God never lies. He's so awesome. So he says, listen, it appeals to us. It appeals to our old nature, and it appeals to our new nature, because you know what? Bottom line is, we want to please God. We want to please God. We just go about it the wrong way. We go about it by thinking that our behavior does it or our appearance does it. I remember back in the 90s. Yes, it was just in the 90s. For some of us, that wasn't too long ago, right? It's like a couple weeks ago. And I remember going to visit a church back in the 90s. And I walk up to the door of this church. There's about 700 people, it's a good sized church. And just before I opened the door, I noticed a little plaque on the wall. I said, oh, what's this say? And so I read this little plaque, and it said, Ladies, please do not enter unless you're wearing a dress. Whew, glad I'm not a lady. I thought, wow! This is either a men's club or there's some pretty daring men in there. <laughs> and I figured... Yeah, because, I mean, really? You're going to put that on a list to get in there? And they, I mean, that's how, that was the rules. And they abided by the rules that were in there. Let, let me ask you something. Does that really impress God? Because now some of you, yes, you have to have a dress, it's got to be this long. No, I understand modest apparel. I understand those principles. But I'm saying, are you kidding me? You can't go in unless you're wearing a dress. You can't go in with your slacks on, or you can't play a guitar to the glory of God in your shorts. Are you kidding me? Listen, we see the outward. God sees the inward. If anyone should be back in dressing in biblical times, it should be us men. Back then they wore togas. That looks like a dress to me. Right? They just stuck a belt around it. And then when they were working or had to run, they would reach down, grab the back of it, bring it up and tuck it in their pants, called girding up the loins. And hence, pants were discovered. That's uh-huh. so what they said, hey, we can, we can make something look like that. So, but I'm like, wow. Their motives, maybe their motives were pure. That They said, this is how you please God. Their methods were off. Just observations. Dangers of legalism. we got to wrap it up real quick. You know what I noticed? Somebody changed the clock between services. Oh. Thank you, Dan, 6'8", who could reach it. <laughs> I was like, huh, oh, because this morning I was done by 9 o'clock. I was like, yes. <laughs> dangers of legalism. Let's, let's ratchet it up. We've mentioned this already. It, takes, it says it places our faith on our behavior rather than our beliefs. And you say, well, how many times you got to say this, Tim? Until we get it. Until we get it. A behavior-focused walk is one that constantly asks the question, what does God expect of me? This is nothing new. Matter of fact, you remember John 6, 28 and 29, the people were standing there and they said to Jesus, they had good motives, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Behavior. What do we have to do to do the works of God? Notice plural. And Jesus answered, this is the work, singular, of God. And what is it? That you believe in him whom he sent. And we look at that and we go, well, that's not work. That's just believing. All right, Lord, I'll believe. But what do you want me to do to do the works of God? And he goes, believe in him who sent. Yeah, but what do you want me to do to do the works of God? Believe in him whom he sent. Oh, yeah, 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 I get that. But what do you want me to do? God bless you. Do you get the idea here? We we're kind of, What do we do? What do we do? And it, this is the idea that somehow we put our focus more on, on our works and ourselves than we do on God. The picture one says, Jesus has done this. We look to God. It's all about our focus. Is your focus on what Jesus did? Or is your focus on what I must do? You see when we are always focusing on what I want what I must do, and keep those short lists with God and make sure i 'm all fessed up, when we focus on this, we have this preoccupation, and we find ourselves in a continual evaluation of our measuring up spiritually. We find ourselves preoccupied with continually being preoccupied with measuring ourselves to see if we measure up spiritually. How am I doing today? Oh, I'm not doing very good today. Ooh, had a little stinky attitude over here. And our focus is always on us instead of our focus on God. This is, this is a real point here. The focus, we place our focus on our behavior more than our belief. And there's preoccupation with focusing on ourself will open the mind's door to the devil's lies. The more you focus on what you're doing, the more you open your mind to the devil's lies. And the devil's going to get in your mind, and he's going to start lying to you. And he's going to say things like this. You are a lousy Christian. Did I spell lousy right? Is that right? <laughs> it didn't get a red line under it. And I said, well, that's a good sign. But that doesn't always mean anything. The devil says, you're a lousy Christian. So you know what we say? Yeah, I am a lousy Christian. You know what that's called? When the devil tells us something and we tell ourselves the same thing? It's called confession. What? Yeah. To confess means to say the same thing. That's what confess means. To say the same thing. And when the devil tells us a lie and we say the same thing that he says, guess what we're doing? We're convinced of that lie because they say, you know what, you're right, I must be a lousy Christian. And what it does is it opens our mind up, and now we're vulnerable to more lies of the devil. And before you know it, we get all wrapped around the axle, focusing on our behavior rather than what God says. Rather than say, this is what God says about me, but we start confessing what the devil says. And the problem is that the devil's lies fit right into a performance-based belief system. If you have a performance-based belief system, his lies will fit right into it. And he will have a heyday with your mind. And not only will he tell you you're a lousy Christian, he'll tell you how you're a lousy Christian. And he'll tell you how long you've been a lousy Christian. And he'll tell you in what ways you've been a lousy Christian. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to say, yeah, I guess you're right. I have been. Remember, Josh was sharing with us last week about the accuser of the brethren. He accuses us day and night. He accuses us to the Lord. He tells the Lord, hey, you got a lousy Christian down there. And he says, he's in my son. He's holy in, in, in my son. He accuses us to each other and says, hey, do you see what she said? Do you hear what he said? And he accuses us to each other and he accuses us to ourself. He said, what kind of person are you? You really think God forgave you for your sin? I remember what sin you did. I remember when I was first saved. I went to my dad's house. He wasn't saved yet. So he was trying to reconvert me back to what I was. And uh, so he had a barbecue. And the priest was there. And he had all the dirt on me. How do you have all the dirt on you? I told him. So I was smart enough to drive to the other town and go to confession. Oh yeah, and I mean, I was joy of the Lord just beaming on me. I was saved about a month, and uh, and he, I remember him saying, "Don't forget, I know what you've done." And at first, I was like, "That's right, you do know what I've done." And by now, you probably already told my dad. So who cares? But I mean, that thing hit me like, "Whoo!" But then I had to say, wait a minute. Jesus forgave all that. That was B.C., amen? I believe in B.C. That was me before Christ. And so I'll tell you, once that, that rock hit me, man, it, it hit me hard. But praise the Lord, it was about two months, no, no, it was about a year later, my dad got saved. So he invited his buddy to lunch with him, and he said, hey, let me tell you something. <laughs> and his buddy is the priest. My so, yeah, that was awesome. Anyways, we won't go there. Did you know this? Do you know Hebrews 10 is all about focusing on the law? It's all about focusing on the Mosaic law, the blood of bulls and goats aren't sufficient. It's all about previously Melchizedek is is the high priest, not your man's high priest. And the book of or, uh, Hebrews is all to Hebrew people, Jewish people. And he's saying to them, hey, forget it. Stop trying to live by the law. Try, stop trying to focus on the Mosaic law. And he writes this to them. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of what? Faith. Having our hearts sprinkled. That's what they did after the sacrifice. They would sprinkle the veil. They would sprinkle the mercy seat. He said, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. NIV writes a, a guilty conscience. An evil and guilty conscience was a mind that made the law or behavior its focus instead of Jesus. You say, Wow. I thought a evil mind and a and a bad mind, a bad evil conscience was Tim B C, like on a Friday night. When I remember when I got saved, I was saved on a Thursday about ten in the morning. And I confessed all the sins I had committed, and I confessed the sins I was going to commit that weekend. I had them planned out. I did. I was gonna go here, I was gonna do this, I was gonna do that. And so so here I, I'm thinking all these things in my life. And, and when it comes to the law, the focus is on, oh man, I was so bad and this, that, and the other thing. But the Lord says, okay, now. He says, you've moved past that. An evil conscience is not a conscience that thinks about all the bad things it's going to do that night. An evil conscience, according to the definition of God, is a conscience that is on the law that he wrote more than on his son that he sent. You following this? That's what he says here. An evil conscious is one that thinks more about the law and focuses on the law instead of focusing on his son. It's called sin conscious rather than Christ conscious. There was initials that have been used lately to help us. Anyone ever seen those initials? WWJD? WWJD. Have you ever really stopped to think about this? And how ingrained we are on behavior-based belief system. What would Jesus do? Now that's kind of cool. You say, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And and when we look at that, pause for a minute and look at that. And ask yourself, what is the end goal in that? We ask ourselves, what would Jesus do in this situation? So whatever he will do, then I will do. Right? However he will behave, then I will behave. And as long as I'm behaving the way he behaved, well, then I'm okay. Right? Can you see the focus? I mean, seriously, ask God to take the scales from your eyes and see the difference. The focus is on behavior. What will Jesus do? And this is what I should do. Instead, our focus should be, what did Jesus do? Not what would he do, what did he do? And what he did is where we are to focus on and say, thank you, Jesus, because you have done this in my life. So when the devil whispers in your ear, and he says, you are a lousy Christian, if you are to confess and say the same thing the devil says, you will say, I am a lousy Christian. Or the other day, like when when Joshua Coley, he comes back, he says, man, no sooner did I get back, the devil's hit me. He says, man, you are such a hypocrite. He's like, wait, he almost said, yeah, I'm such a hypocrite. He goes, wait, no, I'm not a hypocrite. Get behind me saying this this. You are labeling something on me that I am not. And see, when the devil puts a lie in her head, the question is this. What will you confess to yourself? What will you play in your head? What tapes will you rewind? Will you say, "Yes, I'm a lousy Christian," and say the same thing the devil says?" Or will you say, "Here the devil say, "You're a lousy Christian," and you say, "I am victorious in Jesus Christ. I am victorious because of Jesus Christ." All right? Amen? For God has given us the victory in Christ Jesus, right? How many here are victorious today in Christ? Amen? I'm not victorious because I've been, what did Jesus do when I did it? I'm victorious because Jesus Christ made me victorious. Even when I fall on my face, I'm still a victor. Amen? Even when I don't feel like a conqueror, I feel like a loser. But he says, no, you're a mega-conqueror, Tim. Super-conqueror. I love that. Romans chapter 8. I don't feel like a super-conqueror. I feel like I've been super-conquered. He goes, no. You're either going to say what he's telling you, or you're going to say what God's telling you. Amen? By the way, for... A help in this area. I got this little pamphlet for you. <laughs> you could take it, post it on your wall. We have one on our wall. I've got a bunch of them out there. Grab them, take them. If you say, Well, I don't know what to say. That's okay. You could just work through here. All the scriptures in there, everything. I am forgiven. I am reconciled with God. I am rescued. I am redeemed. I am bought with the price. I am known by God. I am chosen. I am justified by God. I am accepted. I am saved. I am alive. I am free. I am loved. I am cared for. And the list goes on. Amen? Woo! I'm like, yeah, baby! That's what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. I love these things. I a Bonnie, order a bunch. Take them... My wife's got it right up. As soon as you walk out of the bathroom, there it is, right in the hall. <laughs> yeah. Take it, believe it, live it, confess it. Say the same thing back to God. You follow me? You're not sure what to say? Just say what God says. All right, are we about done? Oh, no, we got one more. Let's wrap this up. Let's put a bow around it. What page am I on? Hold on. Where are we? Oh yeah legalism claims others endorse sinful living they claim that the grace livers liver <laughs> I got a grace liver the grace pate <laughs> grace living and jesus focused living is lawlessness but friends i'm here to tell you jesus focused living is not lawlessness it's just not the law of Moses. It is a different law. And the Bible calls it, in Galatians 6.2, the law of Christ. He calls it, in Romans 8.2, the law of the Spirit. He calls it, in James 1.25 and two verse twelve. he calls it the law of liberty. Literally calls it the perfect law of liberty. Mark refers to it, in Mark chapter 12, as the law of love. And there's two commandments that come with this law. And the two commandments are these. You are familiar with the verse. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And in case you have trouble learning a long list, he'll only give us two. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these commandments. He said, well, how do they ever get into that subject? I'm glad you asked. Because a Pharisee came up, and he said, man, I've really been trying to uh, keep the law. And, and he goes, man, we used to have ten commandments. And then we whittled them down to, we called them ten words. The Jews just called them ten words. And he said, we have to live by these ten words. And he goes, I'm trying to go by these ten words. I'm really struggling. Can you condense it to a a smaller version, a Reader Digest version. And he goes, I'll give you two. Two little commandments. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your strength. And he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, on these two laws, you can hang all the law and the prophets right on those two. Because if you love God, you will do the things that please God. If you love somebody, you do things that please that person, right? Right? But, but if, if, if you love God, he says, then you're not going to be worshiping those idols in chapter 15. You're not going to be hanging out there in the, in the temples with these idols. You're not going to be uh, committing sexual immorality because if you love God, and, and, and God's appalled to that, he says, don't do that. Don't do it. He tells Christians, stop doing this. If you love God, he says, you don't do these things. If you love people, guess what? You're not going to steal their stuff. If you love people, you're not going to lie to them. If you love people, you're not going to covet their wife. If you love people, you're not going to do things that that hurt them. Why? Because you love them. God says, hey, don't think that grace living is lawless living. The difference is what motivates us. The law of Moses was duty-driven. Don't you love that? I mean, I love it. If you read Deuteronomy, it's a riot. I know you think so too. But it really is. He gives all the blessings and all the curses. You do all this and you'll be blessed. And if you don't, you'll be cursed. If you don't, this is what happens to you. That's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The blessings and the curse. That's why the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the very last word is the word curse. And that's why the very last word of the New Covenant is the word amen, I believe. and you'll, it's, I can't get in a whole... Uh, Mountains, things going on here. But he says, here's all the things you're doing. You know what they said? Okay. All the Lord says we will do. And he goes, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That was chapter 28, chapter 29. But in chapter 30, I said, but after all these curses shall be put upon you and you shall be driven into all the land then you will return. Literally, you will repent. And I will bring you unto myself, and I will take out that heart of stone, and I'll put in a heart of flesh, and I'll circumcise your heart, that you may love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. This is no new commandment. It's been around since way back in the day. And But they're saying, like, no, we'll do the law of Moses. All the Lord says we will do. The Lord says you won't do it because you need the heart surgery. You need the heart changed. He says, if you you do these things, you'll live, but you won't do them. And Jesus says to us, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 15. Let me ask you a question. Before we go past this slide, look at that verse. If you love me, keep my commandments. Where are you drawn to in that verse? Most people's focus is right there. Keep my commandments. Okay, and people say to me, hey, Jesus said, if you love let me keep my commandments. I know He said that. You don't think I read the book of John? I preached through the entire book of John. I know it says keep my commandments, but that's the keep my commandments is not the focus. We make it the focus. Jesus makes the first part of the verse His focus. If you love me. He says, listen, you can obey me without loving me, but you cannot love me without obeying me. Isn't it? He says, just love me. And if you love me, you won't do the things that hurt me. You see, friends, the question is all about the focus. We need to remember, as I wrap this up. Did I already say that? For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourself is a gift of God. What's the gift? The faith to believe. Wow. Not of works, lest any man should boast. We would get to heaven, we would brag about getting there, how we got there. For we are his, No, notice, workmanship, his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus, don't miss this, for good works. Why did God make you in the first place? Why did God make me? I ask him that all the time. He says you were created for good works. which God before, or Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God called us to good works. He called us to live right. He called us to serve him. But it's a total different motivation. It's because we love him, not because it's expected of us. Does that make sense to you? Colossians 2.6 says this. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord. How did you receive him? By grace are you saved through faith. Did you receive him by behavior? No, I received him by belief. Did you receive him because you were so good? No, I received him because he's so good. He said, the same way you received him, so walk in him. So walk in him. Let me close by teaching you a little bit about walking. Walking is all about balance. Do you realize walking is just a controlled fall? Have you ever thought of that? I'm serious. You're like, damn, why do you think of these things? I'm serious. If I'm standing here, I start moving my body weight forward. I'm pushing with my left foot on the heel of my or the toes of my feet, and as I go forward, I put my other foot out like this. Oh, I just stepped, and I do that a couple times. I'm walking. See how that works? Now, if I didn't, if I didn't put my foot out, what do you think would happen? Face plant, right? When you lose control, boom, you fall down. And and walking is keeping that balance. you not. You start tipping to the left. Anyone ever had vertigo before? That's really cool. That's like having a rough night and not even having anything. I really did. Not that I have rough nights, but B.C. I did. I know. I was like, wow. I, I went to the doctors. I was literally going down the wall of the, the clinic like this. Down the wall because it was so bad. My Balance was all over the place. And praise God, I haven't had it in a year. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. And praying, praying to that end. Balance. Grace walking is all about balance as well. It's a controlled fall. When we lose control in our Christian walk, we fall. And what happens when we fall? The Lord's saying, oh, man, look at you. No, God is able to make him stand. Amen? He said, man, Lord, I fell flat on my face. I said, yeah, I saw that. Come on, get back up. Keep going. The walk, grace walk, is... A continual adjustment to keep your balance is learning to stay adjusted to keep your balance. Your focus is on loving the Lord, loving people, and keeping a balanced life. At first, we're very conscious about it. We're thinking, man, I got to love God. I got to do this, you know, and love him, love people. And we're very conscious about it. Before you know it, it just becomes second nature to us. And you say, you know what? You forget all about the law of Moses. All you can think of is loving God, loving people. And you know what? The behavior takes care of itself. If you will love God and love people, the behavior will take care of itself. I'm a visual guy, so I made my little stick man, but I had to make him in a different way to look at. This is how I see grace balance. The three L's, I call them. On the far left is liberalism. and the far right is legalism. And right in the middle, middle is liberty in Christ. Galatians 5 says, Stand therefore in the liber- liberty wherein you were called. And then he says, But don't give in to the lust of the flesh. You see, friends, when it, when it comes to this grace balance, we never simply stand. He calls us stand in liberty. But we always seem to go, be, go to one direction. Before you know, we start getting into the liberal side. Well, it's okay. Well, that's okay. Ah, so you change the word of God. Okay, take the wrath out. And then, and then we're out of balance, aren't we? And then we say, whoa, whoa, we've got to fix this. And we start going the other direction. And we say, man, i got to straighten up. i got to do this. i got to do that. And then we find ourselves starting to get more to the legalistic side. And you know what? God says, get back in balance. Get back and stand in the liberty wherein you were called. This, is to me, is what our walk is. Because when we are walking, it's all about balance. Just like your physical walk is, so is your grace walk. It's all about balance. And it's all about continually bringing yourself back into balance. And when you're out of balance, you'll fall on your face. But there's a God who lifts you right back up and says, okay, let's try this again. Aren't you glad that he is a God of second chances? And third? And 100? And 1,000 chances? Because we're toddlers, we struggle walking. But the Lord says, it's all about balance. This is what I mean when I talk about grace. Walking in that liberty in Christ, focusing our love on the Lord, not what must I do, and just learn to love him in such a way that I say, wow, I am free in Christ. And he that the Son sets free shall be free indeed. Amen? Don't get back under the bondage. Don't get that yoke of the law back on you. Yoke's on you (laughs) because it won't work. Just fall in love, Father. Stand with me, by the way, Father. Move in our midst this morning. Help us, Lord, to move past it. We we get grace theologically. We understand grace intellectually, but we struggle with grace practically. How does this work? What does it look like? It's not lawlessness. It's a greater law. It's the law of love. To love you and to love people. To confess to you what you say to us. To say it back to you, Lord. Father, help us not to confess to ourselves with the lies the devil gives us. Help us not to say the same thing he says. Help us to say the same thing you say. Work in our midst today, Father, and I pray that there's even one here today. Maybe they haven't been saved yet. They haven't been born again, as you say we must. I pray today would be their day of salvation. I pray today they would give their heart to Christ. Whether they're here or listening over the internet, wherever they might be. But Father, maybe there's someone here they know they're saved. There's no doubt about that but they're so hard on themselves and the devil keeps working on their brain and tell them all these lies and, and, they, and they always think they're unworthy and always trying to measure themselves and they're always worried about the sins of their past or even present. Father, would you deliver them from that? Free them up from the chains of this bondage that they might serve and live and love the living God. Help them, Father. Work in all of our hearts today. To have a proper grace embrace and to just soak it into our very nature. And we'll be sure to bless you and praise you as you do this work. In Jesus' name, we all said, Amen. Amen. Stand with me as we close. Maybe God's working in your heart today. Maybe, like this week, you need healing. Kelsey, this week, diagnosed with cancer, goes in there, and they say, I don't know. It's nothing like we thought it looked like, so we're just going to call it pre-cancer. our God's able to heal to the uttermost. Amen? Ministry team's going to come. We're going to just take a couple minutes. Ministry team, come. If you're here, you need prayer. You need healing. You just say the same thing back to God. You come. Let us pray for you. You come. Maybe you haven't been saved yet. Say, today's the day. I want to know Christ my personal Savior. I want to know Jesus. Let us introduce you to him, Whatever you are, whatever you need. Just know I love you. God loves you. He wants you to come. You come.